gentleman and a scholar. Thank you, Tyler. Center enough. Right there is perfect. <laughs> oh, man. Good morning, Hillcrest family. How fun. Multi-generational community. I love hearing from, uh, from Bethany and, uh, and just hearing what God's stirring in her heart. That's what we do, right? We gather, the people of God gather on Sundays to sing songs, to tell stories, like we heard from Bethany and from our students, and, uh, and then to hear a sermon from the text, and then to be sent out as living proof uh, of a loving God. And so, like you heard Jack say, we, we are in Holy Week. Uh, last week was Paul's Sunday. Last week was Jesus arriving into Jerusalem. And, and so we've been on this movement, the entrance of the king, the teachings of the king, the journey of the king. And now the victory of the king is going to anchor us this spring as we move towards the cross. Last week was Sunday and Holy Week. Today's text is bringing, is bringing us to Monday and Tuesday in Holy Week. And, uh, and, and up until this point, um, Jesus has been under the radar he was born in an obscure village in Bethlehem. Uh, he constantly called people and reminded people, don't, don't share about me. Keep this to yourself. I, I don't want my reputation to go too far yet. For 30 years, that took place for those three years of his ministry. And now he's turning a corner. He is saying the king is here and he is declaring his authority. And so we're going to get to see another look this morning at Jesus inviting us into that. It is the invitation of him showing us his authority and acting like a king to those who have yet to recognize his crown. But in this morning's text, he is showing everyone who is in charge. And so we're going to be in Luke 19, 45. You could turn there with me, journey along as I read it. And, uh, and man, Carson, I love the shout out to seeking transformation. That was stinking cool, man. Uh, this journey with Jesus, right? One day at a time, uh, just some beggars that have found some bread and we want to share it with those we encounter. So Luke 19, Uh, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's just entered in on a donkey and he has wept over the city. Now this is the next thing that Luke records. And he was teaching daily in the temple like he's done many times before that this week's different. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered, and you got to love Jesus, right? What's he do? Answers a question with a question. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable, a story related to that authority he's been talking about. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Then the scribes and the chief Pharisees sought to lay hands on him at that very hour because they understood, they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Jesus now continues and he's calling these listeners and us to his authority. The king has arrived and is informing people of his crown and showing them who's in charge. And so we're just going to walk through the text in these four ways all pointing to that authority. Jesus cleans house. And then he answers their question about his authority with a question of his own and then tells us a story at what it's like for God to deal with us and then calls them and calls us for a response to that authority. So pray with me and we will, we will dig in to, to another text that Luke is inviting us to find certainty in Christ. Jesus, you are so good. Help us see and hear from you. Help us see and feel the weight of this authority being pressed from you to these listeners and to us that you have arrived, King Jesus, and you long to sit on the throne of our hearts. Help us hear and see you and listen to you through your word this morning. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. So, Like we do, the first movement of the text. Jesus cleans house. He enters into the temple on Monday and he cleans house. And here's how Luke records that experience. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. He enters in and he sees what's going on and then responds. The question is, what is he seeing? Usually what gets pointed is the den of robbers. But there's another verse that Jesus quotes just before that, saying to them a purpose of the temple as a place of worship. He quotes Isaiah 56. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. He anchors them in the purpose of the temple. He anchors them in a heart to worship. This is a space no longer. Now the temple resides in us, but a space to worship God. And it was being altered. And so he starts there by quoting Isaiah 56. And then he goes to the action that is troubling it. What is that? He addresses the idolatry and greed of the people by quoting Jeremiah 7. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You're, you're greedy and, and, and making this a place of commerce rather than its intended purpose, a house of prayer. This place is intended to be spiritually focused, but, but your actions are changing that. And, and so the inevitable question for me then, for us, is if the temple no longer exists, now the Spirit of God dwells in us, in what way maybe are we robbing 
God? In what way are we stealing from God in our actions that we do every single day? Sometimes we've made this this heart of faith one of behavior modification and moralism. We simply long to check the boxes. We, we, we sit and we make sure we're we doing the right thing. And, and we've shifted from a heart of worship to, to a heart of moralism. I think second, the, the other idea in a similar vein with our time, our treasure, our talent, how we spend that, it, it becomes a reflection of that heart. And sometimes, again, it becomes more of a checkbox rather than our third value, generous relationships. Out of a heart of generosity of what God has done for us and worship to Him, vertically expressed horizontally, our time, treasure, and talent becomes a checkbox. Uh, If you've grown up in the church, if you've been in and around a local church and you're familiar with these stories, sometimes the way we rob from God is not reflecting His worth, His glory, because we're so familiar and apathetic towards who He is. It has become dulled. We've lost the vitality and freshness of what it means to glorify him. And then for me, uh, one of the ways for me, this one applies maybe more for me, comes from a book called Working the Angles by Eugene Peterson. And he speaks to, to this religious shopkeeping that pastors sometimes fall into this trap of. And so I want to read you a quote for me and how it it hits my heart. Uh, Here's what Eugene Peterson says. American pastors have gone whoring after other gods, stealing from God. What they do with their time under the guise of pastoral ministry hasn't the remotest connection with what church pastors have done for most of 20 centuries. The pastors of America have metamorphosized into a company of shopkeepers and the shops they keep are churches. They're preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, how to lure customers away from competitors down the street, how to package the goods so that the customers will lay out more money. And some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract lots of customers, pull in great sums of money, develop splendid reputations, yet it is still shopkeeping. Religious shopkeeping to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of these entrepreneurs. While asleep, they dream of the kind of success that will get the attention of journalists. The biblical fact is this. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. And the Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one or, or some of these sinners are given the designated pa- role, a title or role as pastor and, and a given designated responsibility in the community. The pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. It is this responsibility that is being abandoned in spades. It becomes religious shopkeeping. <laughs> I hope around here our heart is continually to cry and center our heart on hearing from God through his word and not getting caught up in maybe some of these other elements of place, personality, program, or people, but rather constantly growing and moving towards glorifying our God collectively who has the authority in our lives. Jesus enters Jerusalem and calls people to this authority. He cleans house. And then when questioned by these leaders, he answers their question with a question. Here's what Luke records. He says it this way. 
One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, it's probably Tuesday in Holy Week, and he's done this consistently over these three years, but this day is different. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said, tell us, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And now Jesus is going to take their question, and what's he going to do? Yeah, ask him a question. <laughs> Does your spouse ever do this to you? Do, do you? do you have an idea that you want to share or your friend then turns and says, well, tell us what you think. Uh, Does your spouse ever say, hey, where should we go to dinner? And they respond, where do you want to go to dinner? I saw this meme. I was thinking this has nothing to do with this, but just warmed my heart today. So uh, th- this meme came across my feed and I'm going to start asking Casey this. If she ever says, Hey, well, I don't know. Where do you want to go to dinner? I'm going to say, I'm taking you to your favorite spot. What do you think it is? (laughs) And then whatever she says, you are right. That's where we're going. I'm done playing that game. Anyway, he answered them. I also will ask you a question. And he poses, Jesus, brilliant, poses these two, two ideas, and he threads the needle between them. Here's what he says. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He got baptized earlier, and he's questioning about that experience. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Jesus poses them a dilemma. What's the dilemma? The first option is, So so was that baptism from God? Because if you're questioning my authority and you say John's baptism was from God, then you have to affirm my authority. If you say his was true, then you're affirming. You you should then ask, why don't you listen to Jesus and follow him? Because you're affirming that I do have that authority. But if you answer from man, then we're in big trouble. Because all the people affirm that John was from God. That if they say John's baptism wasn't true, then all the people would disagree and potentially stone them because they understood, they respected and saw John as a prophet. And so what do they say? Jesus says, I'll ask you a question. And their answer to his question? We don't know. Cowards, right? unwilling to answer the question that was presented to them. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And so Jesus then enters in and says, neither will I answer your question then. As he moves towards the cross, the tension is building. And so for me, the question then becomes, what do we see in those Jewish leaders? What do we learn or observe about them? That this, these motives are malicious, dishonest, impure. We see, we see a sense that they're out only to protect their own livelihood. Unwilling to engage with the ideas when presented some inconsistencies. They're unwilling to deal with the or examine the evidence that's presented to them. Again, I think just less integrity. Cowards unwilling to enter in. But what do we see about Jesus' words? He threads this incredible needle between these two ideas. We're going to see it again next week when he says, give to Caesar what Caesar's. But he threads this incredible needle. What ought we do? 
we hang on his words. We long to hear from God through his word. We hang on his words because why? No one outsmarts this guy. He's brilliant. No one, no one comes to him with a question that he's unable to answer. He outsmarts everyone he encounters. And that authority, we understand, is from God. That Jesus speaks and lives with that authority given by God. And so, therefore, the call that Jesus has towards eternal life, if we want to experience his offer of eternal life, as well as a happy, meaningful life in this life, we listen to him. And yet, as we engage around us, does it ever feel like there are many voices clamoring for our attention? Does it feel that way to you guys? So how do we sort out with all the voices? How do we sort out hearing Jesus' voice to hang on his words? I think it's an absolute privilege that you guys allow me this. And yet simultaneously, what are we about here? To become first-handers and self-feeders that we long to hear from God through his word. You've heard me give the illustration. How sweet it is if you heard, hey, Tom, you know Andrea loves you, right? But how much sweeter if you heard from Andrea herself, Tom, I love you. You guys could tell me Casey loves me. How much more if I heard from Casey herself, David, I love you. That's what we long to do is hear from God through his word to say, I love you. And so week in, week out, we hear from God to develop a grid so that then we can ultimately live life culturally discerning and wisely navigating an acceleratingly complex culture. What is this life to be? And how do we hang on Jesus' words? Because there's other voices. What are some of those other voices? The largest increasing population right now listed on our census. Anyone want to take a guess? Yeah, the religious nuns. (laughs) No religion in particular. People that had some maybe affiliation, they're not atheists. So it's not what the box is no God to check on our census. And yet it's split up into three categories. Primarily just people that would say no religion in particular. Other voices that just, I'm just not sure. Uh, Another category, other religions. Nothing new. There are other voices, other religions. You ever had a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon come and knock on your door? They are attempting to be another voice to hang on. Uh, Another one that just we look around our world, uh, an increasingly secular culture. Rather than have God sit on the throne of our hearts, we would have ourselves sit on the throne of our hearts. I am the maker of my destiny. I know what's best. And that increasingly secular culture is pervasive all over the place. I was sharing with some friends this week. I don't know if you guys do this. We make resolutions. And so something we're planning on doing with our kids. I heard it from, I listened to a podcast, think biblically, from the seminary I attended back in Southern California. And one of the professors was saying this. He heard from Os Guinness. He's inviting his kids. He's incentivizing his kids. He's going to pay his kids to spot the lie. My kids are eight and nine. They're not really going to abstractly be able to spot the lie, but three things, hopefully, trying to encourage. Every time we're watching something, there is a voice that's attempting to share an idea. 
spot the lie. So, for example, we talked about this frozen, frozen. Elsa, stinking Elsa, she cries out, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Is that the truth? It's a lie. Spot the lie, but she sings it so beautifully in that angelic voice. (laughs) Trying to key in, there are other voices in an increasingly secular world that says, I am my own king. But all three of those have something in common, what is it? Is it inside or outside influences? I'm going to argue outside. If you'll allow me, there's one that is increasing that is more insidious. It's coming from the inside. It's called progressive Christianity, progressive evangelical culture, uh, a language, a title, exvangelical. And, and so this would be maybe my peer group that grew up in an evangelical culture, and yet they look around and they say they want nothing to do with it. Is it okay if I pause on this one for a second? It feels personal to me. Um, Because part of it I love. Part of of their heart I love. They, They look at evangelical culture and they say, man, it's just filled with a bunch of angry people that are behavior modification focused, just condemning people around behavior. And and they live as consumers and materialistic rather than what they claim to be about generous. And I go, man, those three things? I agree. I look around our culture and that feels when we look at broadly evangelical culture, those three things. I would affirm. And yet they shift on three fundamental issues. Here's what they shift on. How do we sort out hearing from Jesus' voice? Because they would claim to be reading the same thing. They shift on this a shifting view on the authority of the text. They might say, and these are broad strokes, so if you're wrestling with this, I'd love to continue the conversation. And the the Bible's an ancient document. What relevance, how trustworthy is it really? Can we really believe these are the words recorded? And so there's a shifting view on the authority of hearing from God through his word. Uh, A second one, a shifting view on Jesus' saving work on the cross. Because we believe Jesus is nice, right? Is he nice? He's nice. He's a guy. Yeah, compassionate, generous giving. And simultaneously, man, there, there's an edge. And so we, the progressive evangelical, look at God's call to have Jesus act as our go-between on the cross as heinous and malicious. Can't believe in a God who would act in that way rather than seeing the demand of what it is that God had to become man to reconcile us. And then third, around behavior modification, a shifting view on the expressions of faith. Those feel a little too constraining. Jesus didn't really want to have that many constraints on our life. Really, I I just want to loosen that up a little bit. And so it's a shifting view on the expression of faith. Instead, We joyfully, we joyfully follow understanding the way God designed life to work. We long to see the way he designed life to work. And so we listen to his voice. And we'll pick that up a little bit more in the takeaways. Jesus shows us his authority by cleaning house. And then he answers a question with a question. 
And then doesn't just leave there, but he then tells a story about the authority he just claimed. Here's the story he gives. He's going to give it in the form of a parable. And he began to tell a people this parable. And we're going to see five characters. We're going to see an owner of a vineyard, tenants, servants, an owner's son, and others. And see if you could make the, the understanding of who he's referencing in each of these characters. So he tells these scribes and Pharisees, and he began to tell them this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And then he went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants but they would, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. What's this story about? Who is the owner of the vineyard as Jesus is telling us this parable? God. And who are those tenants that he's referring to? Uh, I like the jump soon. We're going to get there because I love that application that you're already jumping to our town. Yes, I think that is true. In the specific historical context, who is it? Yeah, those Jewish religious leaders. Yes. And the servants that get beaten over and over for prophets. These messengers from God that kept calling the nation of Israel back to God. And the owner's son, we feel it. Ah, Jesus. And then the others that get invited in apart from anything they did. Ah, us. (laughs) Ah, that we see God, the religious leaders, the prophets, Jesus, and then the others that get grafted in. And what do we see about God? That he is incredibly and extraordinarily patient and forgiving. He continues to send servant after servant. And yet, what do we see about these tenants? They're ungrateful, entitled, thoughtless, presumptuous, cruel. And yet, these servants are faithful. They continue to call over and over, return to God. And then the owner's son we see willing to die. And then the others, apart from anything they did, the owner says, I'm going to invite them also. I'm going to give the vineyard to them. And then much like you rightly said, how are we sometimes like the tenants? That God in Romans, Paul says, God sent his son while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were still rejecting God, ungrateful, entitled, thoughtless, God's grace and love and mercy invaded our world. 
And that through faith, we can have life in him. And there was another element that the parable speaks to. What does the owner do to the wicked tenants? Don't hear David's words, right? We hear Jesus speaking these heavy realities. Verse 16. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the Pharisees and the scribes understood this was an accusation and condemnation towards them. How do they respond? That's not true. There's no way. That's not how we're acting to God's messengers. That's not how we're receiving his son. Surely not. To which we sometimes in our hearts would say, that's not true. And yet sometimes we creep on a throne of our heart. And then Jesus turns and says, it demands a response. He cleans house with his authority. He answers a question with a question. He gives us a look at what it's like for God to deal with us. And then he calls for a response to his authority. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in Mark and Matthew, each of them include a different, one more phrase on top of that quote. They say, and so we look at his marvelous eyes or we look with marvelous eyes. Luke does not include that element. Why? Because we can look back to Luke 2 where Simeon gives a prophecy of what Luke's intent in sharing with us is. Back to Simeon and Simeon's interaction with Mary. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And he turns to Mary while Jesus is there in his birth. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. That, that Jesus becomes this cornerstone and the builders rejected it. And then he gives two ideas about what this rejection looked like. Here's what he says. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. What is that? I think that's just outright rejection. You stumble, you hit a stone, you trip. Now you know the stone's there. And then what do you do? Reject it. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. If you reject this Jesus and don't listen to his words, he's saying there's implications. Then he gives a second one. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying, I think, rejection and condemnation. Condemnation for those who have rejected him actively as well as those who have passively rejected him just by those other categories we put up earlier. And Monday's coming, right? Monday always comes. The the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They understood the accusation, a call to see King Jesus in a place of authority. Monday's coming, right? How's this look for our lives? What, What does it mean as we enter Monday and all the voices that are competing for our attention and affection? 
I think first, and a beautiful story that is a constant thread in all of this, Jesus timed this out. Did this surprise him? I feel the air of confidence in that response. (laughs) Did this surprise him? No. No. And so when we think of the circumstances in our life, God's plan always gets accomplished. We can trust him in all circumstances. I don't know where you're feeling defeated in life. I don't know where maybe you're being pressed and it feels like the world is pressing in on your circumstances. We are convinced of this, like the cult last week that Jesus said, go get to him walking in and saying, I'm not going to answer your question. All of this, we believe God is accomplishing his plan, both in these circumstances and ours. He's got us exactly where we're supposed to be. And then we can listen to him. And so the question then is, should we? We call every week to hear from God through his word. Should we? Is this the best voice to be listening to? And what I love, one of my favorite, favorite elements is when someone comes up and says, David, I don't know if that's exactly what God intended through his word. Because we're all fighting for interpretation, right? We're all fighting to hear from God through his word. As first-handers, should Jesus be trusted? We say yes. We want to hang on his words. And so, what exactly is Jesus saying? (laughs) That he is the king of our lives. We long to have him sit on the throne of our hearts to find our deepest joy in him and not rob his house and make his temple a place of robbers, right? What is Jesus saying? We long to hear and have him sit on the throne of our hearts. Then the question becomes... Am I listening? (laughs) Am I hearing his words and having them saturate my heart? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. But do I love listening to him? Or have I made it a checklist? Or do I long to sit and hear his words and let them marinate in my heart? And and am I convinced listening to him makes life better? Or is it just a rote experience I do because it's what I do? (laughs) Do I love listening to him? And am I convinced listening to him makes my life better hearing the way he designed life to work? And then this third one for me, in the midst of competing voices, Luke's been calling us to certainty. Joyfully obeying, seeing Jesus is the key to a happy, meaningful life. That, That we're joyfully obeying following and then if that's true do i help others listen to jesus do i long to seek transformation as we heard carson say does our heart break as you heard bethany share her story do we long to share with others so that they might listen to jesus can i give you a little uh uh what do we call it again what's like an equation can i give you a little equation we pray God, what are you inviting me into today? What's that look like? What's it look like as we pray? God, what are you inviting me into? It usually looks like unhurried time. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. Pausing long enough for unhurried time. And then what does that usually look like? It usually looks like some type of proximity or activity with those that have yet to treasure Jesus. 
Kind of like going bowling. 60 dudes went bowling on what day? Friday. 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 Not yesterday. Yesterday is when the Packers lost, right? That's what happened Saturday. (laughs) I'm crying for you. I'm crying for you just a little bit. You can go lean on Brian's shoulder if you need some sympathy. Unhurried time. Usually around some proximity and activity. And then... Asking questions and sparking curiosity, much like Jesus did. Asking questions. Sometimes answering a question with a question. With the hopes of what? People aren't projects. (laughs) Trusting that we get to join what he's already up to in people's lives. Longing to create friendship ultimately towards life with Jesus. So pray with me as we continue to see this victory of the king and continue in worship. Jesus, you are so good to us. Help us experience a little bit more of you this week, whatever our circumstance, knowing that you are intimately involved and that we long to hear your voice in the midst of a sea of competing voices. May we listen and then follow. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.